everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. I'm Alice. This will be episode 37 of Poetry Says. And I just wanted to put the call out out there. If you want to be a guest on Poetry Says, you are more than welcome. You don't need to know anything about poetry. It's actually a real pleasure to speak with someone who's not a poetry expert, quote unquote, about poems. So get in touch with me. Come on the program. You're very, very welcome. And similarly, if you have feedback about the show so far, we're nearly getting towards 40 episodes here. So yeah, let me know what you like. Let me know what I could improve. I'm always happy to hear it. So today's episode, it was a lovely chat I had with Magdalena Ball. Magdalena is a US-born Australian writer. She's written, I think we counted nine collections of poetry, including collaborations, and just has a new book out at the moment called Unmaking Atoms from Ginandera Press. She's also written novels. She runs a fantastic website called The Compulsive Reader, and she has her own podcast series through that called The Compulsive Reader Talks. And she's going to be at the Newcastle Writers' Festival, which is kicking off at the start of April, so just a few weeks from now. So if you like what you hear and you can get yourself to Newcastle, then I definitely recommend spending some time with Magdalena there. It sounds like a great festival. But today we talk about all the ins and outs of putting the collection together, and we do a really fun close reading of a beautiful poem by Samuel Wagan Watson that was published in Poetry May 2016, the Australian issue, called A One-Ended Boomerang. Hope you enjoy. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today, Magdalena. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. No worries. And so you run uh, a blog and interview series at The Compulsive Reader. I do. Um, And you've got a newsletter coming out of that and all kinds of things. And I wanted to kick off by asking you what you are reading at the moment. Oh, I'm reading so much. Um, I'm always reading, but um, we've got the upcoming Newcastle Writers Festival and uh, I've got I've got three separate sessions. Well, I've actually got five sessions all up. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always so greedy. I say yes to everything because I just love it so much. But um, I three sessions, I'm actually leading groups of people with questions. So I really try to prepare for that by reading everybody's books. And if I can, I even try and review all the books because I feel like until I've actually reviewed a book and sat down and kind of analyzed how it hit me and why and what happened and you know, aspects of it, I, I don't feel like I've finished reading it. So um, so I try and read and review everything related to everybody I'm going to actually see at the Writers' Festival, and that's in April. So, um, so I'm, I'm busy trying to read all those things. Um, so the book that I'm reading at the moment exactly, um, I, like I was literally reading it about an hour ago, but I had to stop because it was making me cry and I didn't want to be crying on this session, um, is Hope Farm by Peggy Frew, which is, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's a novel. It's just incredible. I, just so much of it parallels my own life that it's really hard not to read it and cry. I'm almost done. So I'm at that point, you know, that point when you're like three quarters of the well, nearly at the end, actually more than three quarters of, of a book where you just feel like you're just going to just not do all the things you're supposed to do and just read. Oh, completely. Yeah. Everything just takes a backseat and you're finding excuses to just do another page and a half. Or I'll just have it open, you know, I'll be cutting onions and I'll be reading and I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll be sneaking it, like I'd pretend to be folding clothing and I'll be reading. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's where, that's where I find podcasts are so helpful too in audiobooks is you can be cooking or folding laundry and you're still technically in that kind of writing mind. So I like that about them. Absolutely. But but um, you want poetry, don't you? So um, another person I've been reading who's a poet um, is Samuel Wagan Watson. Um, his his book, Love Poems and Death Threats, it, it's incredible. It's just so much about it is interesting to me as a reader, but also as a poet, because he does things that are that are really quite striking. Yeah. And we're going to take a closer look at a poem of his called A One-Ended Boomerang. Is that included in Love Poems and Death Threats? It's not. No, it's um. It was actually published in poetry. So um, I picked that one because it's it's publicly available. 
Um, so it was in, there was a poetry, oh God, I should have written it down. It was like um, last year at the Sydney Writers' Festival, they they had a whole session on it. So it was around about that time. Um, there was an issue of poetry, which was all Australian poets. And it was so good. Everything in it was so good. It was so incredibly well-chosen work. Um, and, and that's how I discovered Samuel, who's online and he's very, you know, he's very active online. He's very much part of the Australian poetry community in many ways. Um, so I, I discovered him then and I've sort of been reading him since, but this one's very public. So anybody can go and have a look at it. We thought it might be fun for people yeah, as an introduction. Yeah, absolutely. I'll link to that one. It's the May 2016 issue. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's actually in, um, there's, it, it uses Highburn mostly. I mean, the, the, his his most recent book, Love Poems and Death Threats, uses a lot of it as well. There's a lot of uh, Highburn in that, which is it's kind of like prose, little tiny bits of prose that ends with a haiku, almost by way of a summary of what you've just read in prose. And it, it's a fascinating form, really interesting. I mean, Basho is is the most famous person who uses that, but it's a it's a fascinating form to to work with, and and uh, Wagan Watson does it beautifully. Really, he really plays with it and 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 fills it with Australian thematics as well, which is quite exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting that juxtaposition. It's really really cool. Mm. Well, before we dig into that poem, I wanted to ask you to talk about um, your upcoming book, Unmaking Adams. Yes, so it's out. It's it actually is out. out. Yeah, it's just it's out. out. Yes. Just out by Jean and Dara Press. Yes. And I'm really interested in how the book came together. It's seven sections and it runs to about 190 pages. But the really interesting thing I found while reading it was there's a real cohesion. It doesn't feel like seven separate chapbooks mashed together into one volume. It's from the first to the last poem, there's a definite through line there. And so I was really interested to hear um, about the process of writing the poems and bringing them together in the collection. Well, I, um, all of the poems were written over a period of about, I guess, about two years worth, um, pretty much. Probably, yeah, about two years. And um, through that period of time, some big things happened in my life. I mean, I was actually... Before I started pulling the book together, some of the poems had already been written, but before I started pulling it together, I was about halfway through the first draft of a, a novel, my third novel, and uh, and my mother died. And that's a big thing. Um, I mean, it's a big thing for anyone. Um, but it was a, a fairly intense process. It was fast. She'd been ill for on and off for about a year, but you know, we thought it was nothing. Um, it was, I guess that's not that uncommon either. You know, we thought it was, um, urinary tract infections. We thought all sorts of things. Um, it turned out to be cancer and in quite late stage and, uh, the transition from kind of being a little unwell for a long time to being, you know, to, to basically dying, um, was very fast and happened over a period of about three or four months. Um, and, and she lives in the U S, um, as you might tell by my somewhat strange accent <laughs> um she lives in she lived in the u.s and uh and so i'm in australia so it was a, there was a lot of traveling back and forth to see her so i would say that a, a proportion of these poems were written through that time I, I i literally stopped being able to write prose i couldn't finish the novel i just couldn't write it anymore Some, something in me just wouldn't allow it to it just wasn't working for me i mean i, I had kind of hit a wall anyway but it wasn't the medium i needed to work with through that that whole period of loss and grief and and pain and poetry was right poetry helped me so much um, I've said this so many times and I'll probably keep saying it is you know I don't know I don't know how people who don't have an artistic medium like poetry how do they cope with grief <laughs> how do you deal with it because it's such a complex emotion and, and poetry is so right for complexity. So you'll see when, um, as you're reading the poems, that a lot of them pivot around that point of grief. A lot of them pivot around my mother and that that pain, and and how that pain. How did I? How do you universalize that pain, or how do you approach that pain as an artist? And so you know that that's that's one of the cohesive factors, I guess, through the book is is this notion of grief and death and and pain, mm. all happy stuff. 
And that's why I was so happy to hear you read Jane Kenyon's uh, bits of Jane Kenyon's having it out with mel melancholy. Um, and your last poetry says it was, I love her. She's so good. And, and that was so appropriate. Oh, God, I love Jane Kenyon. Well, first of all, I'm just so sorry to hear that that's something you've had to go through in the last couple of years. That's so quick. Yeah, it was intense. She's and she was young. I mean, she was massively young when she had me. She was only seventeen, so she is only sixty-six, and she, you know, she was young when she died. Oh, I'm so sorry, um, but I know exactly what you mean. There's something about the weight of emotion in grief that only a poem can really hold. Um, a novel. There's just something about a novel that's just not quite going to do it for you, and it makes sense now. You having told me that that as I was reading the poems there's a very elegiac tone to a lot of them but the thing that I really loved about it is there's uh, you, you don't seem to be going for solace and the poems seem to exist in this universe that knows that I mean to put it bluntly there's no divine um, uh, kind of happy ending there there's nothing beyond that kind of ending or if there is it's not something that we as human beings can really understand and um, I just want to bring up these little lines from one of my favorites from the book it's called Catalyst it says no matter how hard I try to forget my body keeps reminding me at the atomic level I'm little more than a substrate attached heat driven 26 element molecule subject to reactivity and mathematical constructs. I just thought that's so great. That's my attempt at being funny. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite funny. It is quite funny. But um, in the context of the poems around it, and again, that elegiac tone, it is, yeah, there's, there's a sadness in there as well. I don't know. Am I am I on the right track with that interpretation of that that kind of um, worldview inside this book? Well, sadness to a certain extent, of course, um, of course. But I, I I almost feel that there is a kind of solace in in being reminded <laughs> that that you know we're atomic. I, I don't know why that would be solace. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe a kind of Buddhistic solace rather than a you know kind of Christian solace. Um, my mother was actually very spiritual as well. So, uh, you know, we had to, we did do this, um, there was a kind of Tibetan ceremony that we held over her body <laughs> and, uh, you know, she had very clear instructions and, and there was a lot of chanting. Um, and I don't know, I, again, I, I sort of do find solace in science. I, I'm not sure why I do, but uh, seeing moving a little bit beyond the human and into something a bit more universal kind of helps it's a it's an odd solace it's not you know it, it's not the kind of solace where you dance in a field <laughs> but it's it, somehow getting beyond the moment and and seeing things in a broader context going outward i do find you know it is a it, it's a way I think, of transcendence. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that because with that um, idea of it being a more Buddhistic world um, worldview and type of solace, for sure. And there's a, another line that I really loved in a poem called Reflecting Sphere. And that poem ends with this couplet that says, you are chemically already a star. And of course, everyone kind of knows that. And it's this kind of idea that we throw around, you know, we're all made of stars kind of thing. But um, mm. yeah, I think there is a solace in that. And, and yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to get to is like, yeah, it's, it's a different kind of solace. It's a, you know, there's no, um, there's no myth, there's no happy ending, but there doesn't need to be for some reason. It reminds me a lot of that. I think it's Dawkins who says, you know, why do you need fairies to be at the bottom of the garden to appreciate the garden? Something along those lines. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, the, it's also a, an affirmation. I mean, you're a star. Well, you are a star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also wanted to ask about, um, because not only are we fellow poets, but we're also classmates. 
We yes, we did. are. We yeah. are. Yeah, we both did Modern and Contemporary American Poetry with Al Filreis through Coursera, which I've mentioned a few times. What year did you do it in? I started in the first year as well. Oh, same. So yeah, I don't okay. know how we didn't bash heads. Um, I did it the first year intensely. I kind of just dabbled for about two years after that. So, you know, I'd sign up. I kind of poke my head in from time to time and I thought, well, I'm, I don't want to rewrite my Emily Dickinson essays and, you know, I don't want to do those things exactly. But then by the third year, they started putting out this multiple plus thing and there was new poems and new opportunities and suddenly everything changed. It was like it instead of being a course, it became a conference. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it, yeah, and, and I was the same, did it so intensely in that first year and then just kind of wanted to have that connection with the community but couldn't quite bring myself to have that same level of engagement, which is completely fine. I don't think anyone's worried about that. Um, but I was really interested because it sounds like you were born in the US, is that right? Yes, that's right. I grew up there as well, so I didn't leave until I'd finished high school. Okay, and then you came to Australia? Actually, until I finished my undergraduate degree. So um, I was in my 20s when I left. Okay, and then came over here? No, I went to England. <laughs> oh, to England and then to Australia? I did, yes. I actually went to England to study. So I went to England to do postgrad. And, uh, and I met my husband there, who was English, but his parents had migrated to Australia um, about a year before, a couple of years actually, before I met him. Maybe it was some years before I met him. And um, and he'd just come back from visiting them. So he had in mind when, when we got married that he wanted to go to Australia, to go back to Australia. And I said, no, I want to go back to the U.S. So we went back to the U.S. for a little while, but we'd applied for immigration to Australia as well. And uh, it was taking a long time. We went back to the U.S. and I got irritated at everything. I mean, we went to North Carolina. We, it was kind of a funny choice where, where there was no family of mine. Um, we just picked a place in the middle. And because uh, I had family, family in New York, family in Florida, family in Virginia, and we went to North Carolina. <laughs> so um, we, we were there for about three months and it just it was unbearably irritating. Um, to, it's hard to go back. It really is hard when you've migrated to go back. And, uh, and he found it hard. And um, when the approval came through for Australian migration, we just we went and we haven't looked back. Oh, so it's kind of like the halfway point for both of you then. It's. Well, well, neither of us is Australian by yeah, birth. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, we're both citizens now, um, both dual citizens, but both citizens. And our kids, of course, are all Australian. So there's three kids. So um, and our three children are all Australian, you know, very much Australian. So it's uh, we've got roots here. And I don't you know, I, I love it. I don't think we'll ever leave. I was interested in that story just in terms of the first three poems in Unmaking Adams are they have really strong links to three great U.S. poets, Adrian mm. Rich, Liz Bishop and Edna St. Vincent Millay. Um, and I was wondering about the way that you've moved around the world and how that's kind of influenced the way that you look at poetry. I don't know if you were reading poetry at the very beginning or when you, when you picked it up, but... Um, oh, yeah. I've always been reading poetry. Right, okay. <laughs> it's always my first... I, I have to say that, um, I mean, I've always, I think I've always been drawn to it um, from when I was really little. But um, my uncle, who's a composer in the U.S., he he gave me, he's he's my mother's young, I mean, he's the youngest brother in, in his generation, like the youngest child, sorry. Um, and so we were fairly close in age, only 10 years apart. And he gave me a pack of books when I was about 13, maybe 12 and I'd been writing some probably very, very terrible poetry at that point, um, cheesy probably. And he handed me this pack of books and, you know, said, look, I, I think you should read these, these poets. You know, I, I think you, you're good. You, you've got, you need to read. And one of them was Ariel, <laughs> thing to give a 13-year-old, um, Sylvia Plath's Ariel. And, and there was Anne Sexton and Bertolt Brecht and Rambo. Those were the four. <laughs> Drunken Boat by Rambo, wow. Arthur Rambo, and uh, and Brito Brax, and uh, I still have those books, and Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath Ariel, and uh, Sexton's Live or Die. <laughs> it was the kind of poetry I was writing at the time. It I think I'm probably right, still actually. writing it. Yeah, thinking about myself at 13. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah, and, and you know, honestly, um, I, I, I just 
went, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. You know, it was like mind blowing for me, particularly Ariel, which I, I continue to dip into. In fact, I taught a little course on it not long ago. Um, and it, it's held all these years, you know, I still go into it and think, God, that's good. Um, so it, from that point on, I was hooked. So yeah, I've been reading poetry for a long time. And, um, and Rich, Adrian Rich and Elizabeth Bishop and Edna St. Vincent Millay, like, they almost seem like proto mothers to me in terms of poetry. You know, they, they, it's like a trajectory. I, f- I feel like their work is a base upon which poets, some poets, and, and I count myself one of those, you know, build on. So I, I wrote those three poems almost together as a series, which I initially had called like the mother series. <laughs> I wrote those after my mother had died. And, um, and it was almost a kind of linking between the, the writing process and, and the grieving process. And I wanted to, I guess, use them, bolster their, you know, go through their work and write through their work and, and try and create something that brought together this sense of, of loss and connectiveness as well, almost to connect with them through, through the years, you know, kind of in that way. Yeah, I thought that it must be something like that, you know, just looking at the lineage and, and particularly in, it's sort of a strange thing to pick up on, I suppose, but in the in your line length, I feel like it's a very rich, Adrian Rich style line mm. length. It's kind of just a couple of words and it's really, it gives a really lovely rhythm to the reading because you only have to hold a very small amount of information in your mind before you get to move down to the next one. And uh, yeah, so I could definitely see that coming through. Sure, not that every poem's like that, yeah. Although I do find that I seem to have a it's not always the same, but I I do have a bit of a consistency in my style (laughs) in terms of line length and rhythm. I definitely, yeah, definitely thought that for sure. The whole collection I thought had a huge consistency to it. The other really lovely thing, just picking up again on the, the theme of the mother, is um. There's quite a definite second person that appears throughout the collection. And I suppose there might be a temptation, given everything that you've said about what you went through in writing it, to be quite reverent and try and, um, I don't know, tell only the beautiful side of those stories. But this you that you speak to in, in the poems there's there's an ambivalence there there's a push pull i feel mm. um there's a, a really beautiful long poem which um is like a conversation it's kind of like you're negotiating with yourself like how am i to deal with this this memory of this person what am i to do with the objects that are left behind um yeah again really useful questions to be grappling with through grief and questions you could probably only ask effectively in a poem yeah I mean another interesting thing about grief um I mean looking at it objectively is that there's whatever you're feeling there's a kind of network how do I put this there's kind of a network of similar grief out there already that you tap into it's again it's an odd kind of comfort but it is a comfort I find it certainly has been a comfort for me um to tap into this network of people who have also lost mothers or lost somebody, or this network of loss. And it's almost like a linking of hands. You feel that support. It, it does help to know that, you know, that this grief that feels so isolating at times also is connecting in that sense, that I, I, I'm part of something, that, you know, the, the grief itself is part of something bigger. And that's, again, that's, the solace of art, this idea of being, of being part of a collective, tapping into collective, and exploring that collective. I mean, you know, there's there's mother, as in my mother, the person who's lost, and that's one of the use. But there's broader sense of motherness as well, um, of you know, earth mother, um, you know, mother child as you know, there's a whole range of, I guess, of, of subtleties around what the you can be and who the you is. Yeah, definitely got that sense for sure. Well, shall we detour now into 
the Samuel Wagon Watson poem, A One-Ended Boomerang? Sure. Do you want me to read it? That would be great. Okay. So I do have, I have Samuel's permission to read his poem and <laughs> to talk about it, which is nice to have. Um, he begins, so the poem, the poem again is called uh, A One-Ended Boomerang, which is in and of itself a great image. That's my in and of itself a great image is from me, not Samuel. I'll stick to Samuel for a few minutes. So um, it begins with uh, a little quote from Leonardo da Vinci. For once you have tasted flight, you will walk the earth with your eyes turned skywards. For there you have been, and there you will long to return. An hourglass constricted, the whore inside of me who is watching the clock, monitoring the time, this wasted time to get off, get going, lunar cycle gauge of tide and meridian. How I can hear the sand slip downward in my body clock. I need to be here, could be there, and not long ago the only place you wanted me to be was by your side. Maybe? I am a pencil that cannot sharpen, ink that slides off paper, outside of our time. I am lost, a one-ended boomerang. That's the poem. Mm. So at first glance, at first reading, it seems like it could be a love poem. Mm. But I'm not satisfied with that. I feel like it's, it's going further than just a straightforward the only place you wanted me to be was by your side, you know, a straightforward love poem. Um, and I've been trying to put together a case for that by doing a close reading. And yeah, I'm not really sure. What do you think? Well, I, again, the, one of the reasons I, I really like this poem so much is that he's conflated so many things. I mean, you know, there is love, of course there's love. Um, but he's he's pulled in all sorts of stuff, you know, the political and the domestic comes together, ethereal love comes together with a sort of um, time and the, the progression of time. Um, I, I mean, I love all that lunar cycle gauge of tide and meridian, um, wasted time to get off, um, you know, watching the clock and, and all of that, of course, the, the, the body clock, being unable to be there, being here. I mean, all of that I think is is complex and is as much about the self and the nature of the self and, you know, even things like the aging process and, and constriction and, and loss as they are about love. Yeah, and there's a tension really, isn't there, between this person who's watching the clock and then the you that they're speaking to who is quite definitely somewhere else mm. um i just love that the whore inside of me who is watching the clock i mean yes it hasn't felt like that sitting at a desk you know, I know that's... The time. It's yes that, that's that's very um i should say that's very wagon watson like you know this idea the, this idea of really cutting to the chase even in a poetic first... way absolutely yeah and even the first clause an hourglass constricted mm. Um, that phrase is constricted. It's so condensed down, you know, mm. and I love the image of an hourglass, which is already kind of constricted in that it goes in in the center being like further squeezed and time just only just kind of dripping through. Um, yeah, just giving that sense of like, oh, God, when is this going to end? Type feel. Yes, and, and even this notion of kind of being being stopped, being cut off from from one's purpose, you know, the, this idea of the one-ended boomerang or the, you know, the pencil that cannot sharpen, ink that won't stay on the paper, the ineptness, all of that comes through so strongly that, you know, that, that tension that uh, I can't be what I need to be. Yeah, maybe that's where it, it steps outside of the love poem is this sense of uselessness or futility in those images, the pencil mm. that cannot sharpen, ink that slides off paper outside of time I am lost so it's not just about missing someone it's about being so far away from like you said your purpose and where you want to be that yeah there's just a sense of uselessness there maybe nostalgia too I mean I, I always think 
with something like this, a love poem where where the love is impossible, <laughs> there's a sense of of it not being a love poem so much to a person or, you know, a, a poem about memory, a poem about what where we were and where we can never be again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not being able to get back to that point. It's not possible. Do you think there's an acceptance in it? It doesn't feel like it's railing against this situation particularly strongly. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's acceptance. I think maybe I'm not sure because there's a lost, a lostness in it. You know, I am lost. And uh, you, you always get the sense with somebody who's lost that they're, that they're, you know, there's a, there's a flip side. There's that, you know, to become found that at some point. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely an uncertainty, a doubt in there. I mean, the, the first section of the Highburn, the more um, uh, prose poetry section just ends with an ellipsis and then the word maybe, you know, maybe mm. question mark. Yes, so, yes. Um, and you can't pick that up so easily in, in, in an audio. I mean, I, I would urge listeners to go in and check it out. Um, and I'm sure you'll put a link to it on your phenomenal linked up section that you, you do um, because it's, it's got structure. The poem has quite a lot of structure, particularly in the, um, in the second part of it, the sort of haiku like it's not actually haiku form, but um, you know, the, I am a pencil bit has structure that's worth looking at and seeing the visual of it, the way it moves forward as well, which is very interesting um, forward and backwards as well. Almost like a boomerang. And it's more, you know, like a concrete poem in the structure of the way the text is placed. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's almost um, echoing that idea of ink that slides off paper too, because the words are kind of sliding away and down the page. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. And of course, of course, whenever you use the word ink in a poem, you're, you know, you're in meta poetry territory as well. You're writing about the writing process. Yeah, it definitely feels like it has that element too. The, the most mysterious line to me is uh, second to last in the prose poetry section, how I can hear the sound slip downward in my body clock, question mark. So that should, that's, it feels like it should say, how can I hear the sound, yes. sound slip downward in my body clock? The fact that that grammar is kind of corrupted, so fascinating. So yes, especially with the question mark at the end, because if the question mark wasn't at the end, you could say, how I can hear, <laughs> you know, but the, it's a question. So it is almost an implied, how is it I can hear? Mm. Yeah, and there's a sense of being trapped in it as well, trapped in that mm. hourglass, hearing the sound. Or being the hourglass, yeah. being becoming that. We are, mm. aren't we? We are all hourglasses. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. I, um, what do you think about the epigraph, the Da Vinci quote? Yes. It's a, it's it's quite different to the poem. I mean, it's almost it's almost this idea of 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 um you know of, of flying. This idea of, of uh, wanting to be more, wanting more than we have. This idea that there is always more. There's something something a little bit beyond. I wondered about that in terms of, I mean, it's such an interesting source, you know, mm. but thinking about it, so it says, for once you have tasted flight, you will walk the earth with your eyes turned skywards, for there you have been and there you will long to return. There's a sense of not just losing a person, but losing an entire kind of sphere of being, um, and I guess part of me wanted, knowing that Samuel Wagon Watson is an Indigenous poet, wanting to tie that back to loss of country, mm. um, potentially. And that, that's a good point, actually. Now that you now that you've said that, um, yes, there, there is a sense there too, of not being able to return, perhaps, to the earth. Mm. At the same time, I wouldn't want to... I mean, the title is A One-Ended Boomerang, so again, there's that kind of fairly direct link to Indigenous culture, but I wouldn't want to say, oh, this poem must be about, 
loss of country because it's by an aboriginal poet like it's obviously there's there's so much further that you can go than that but it just kind of made me wonder particularly with the da vinci quote um yeah just kind of a question there yeah that, that i know i think i mean and boomerang is in there as well which you know immediately reminds you of this notion of returning but of course, a one-ended boomerang doesn't go back. So that does link there. You know, you, you might. What is the sky? What is the earth? In in the Da Vinci quote, mm-hmm. as it applies to the poem, is the earth where we've been? Is the you know is the sky where we've been? Have we been to the sky? And now we we're longing to return. Is it the earth? There's an interesting paradox there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Particularly with your with, with the reading you just did, this notion of wanting to longing to return back to to being earthbound, but that of course is the opposite of the Da Vinci quote. Mm. Yeah, it's a great juxtaposition. It just it opens up a whole range of questions that you wouldn't have if you just had um, the the highborn as it was. And mm. I think it's tough sometimes when you want to use an epigraph, especially a, a big chunky one like that. Yes, and in a, a small poem. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah. a short poem and a big epic, epitaph. Mm. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I really wonder what the readers of Poetry Magazine thought of this, and and of all the poems in. The ah, it was that was a cracker of an issue. Yeah, absolute cracker. I was just so proud. I was just looking at all these names, people that I'd met, and people yeah. that I knew of, yeah. and just thought, "Oh my God, we've taken over. This is great." I know it's funny, isn't it? How how you feel that sort of pride in your, you know, sort of fellow poets. I don't think maybe only the poetry community is like that. So, um, so supportive. It's lovely. Um, and I'm mentioning that just because also in your phenomenal last Poetry Setters podcast, which, you know, in which you covered rhythm so beautifully, um, you mentioned another poem that I'd come across from poetry, um, Heisenberg saying goodbye to mom at Lilyfield by Luke Davies, who's having a bit of a moment at the, right now. Um, and that poem reduced me to tears. That the poem was so good when I came across it. I was so glad you mentioned it as well. Yeah, I was really glad. I, I yeah, I just kind of was looking at for examples of blank verse, and so glad that I remembered that one. Um, yeah, that's a great one. And then, and, and it's it's a good example. I mean, he's a poet, isn't he, Luke Davies? I mean, he's really first and foremost. Uh, he can, you know, he can win an Oscar, and and I've got my money on him winning an Oscar, but. He's a poet first, and he's one of ours. And when he wins that Oscar, we'll all go, oh, I feel so proud. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah, we were talking the other day with some friends about this kind of question, though, of like the poetic community in Australia and um, there's two sides to it, I think. I think there is a lot of supportive activity um, that's really, really great. And then I think there is a side to it where there's competition and – certain level of maybe creative jealousy I've, I've heard that from people but honestly Alice I have never seen it I have That's never really seen sight nor sound of that yeah. um, probably because I don't want to <laughs> but the truth of the matter is I have I, I have found this to be in, an unbelievably supportive community um, maybe it's you know the community in which I've been lucky enough to find myself but the amount of support, I mean, even, you know, even yourself, I, I have read poems, you know, one end of Boomerang being one of them and, you know, Heisenberg saying goodbye to mum at Lilyfield and having out with melancholy being others. Um, I've read poems like that where I thought, oh, my God, I'm so jealous. If only I could write like that, you know, and I have felt that little ping. But the reader in me immediately kicks in with gratitude, you know, immediately overrides the writer who goes, God, why can't I do that? You know, and you know, that sort of green gills poking out and immediately the reader's like, but what I just felt to be, to, to have felt that, uh, you know, I feel so grateful to that poet for being able to do that for me. And I've, as a writer, as a poet, I felt that same sense of support from other writers. It's just a, a matter of, you know, I think we're all readers. We're all readers. And I think we're all readers first. At least that's been my sense. Yeah, oh, it's really good to hear you say that. I mean, I'm the same. I can't like point to any concrete examples. It's just something that I have heard other people say, like, you know, oh, it's, it's tough sometimes because there's only a certain number of opportunities and everyone's competing. I, I, I've seen the odd post like that too. I have. Mm. But, you know, I, honestly, I don't 
I don't feel that's the case. I mean, yes, we do. We do put a lot of, I guess there's a lot of um, focus on awards. And it is, it, it's probably the thing that all poets want because it's, it's the turning point. It's the way to get noticed. It's a way to break in and maybe the only way, you know, you're not publishing a book. It's, it's really hard to make a living out of a poetry book. It's hard to even get noticed. So the awards make all the difference. And there, of course, there are only so many awards, but I have just, I have found the community to be extremely supportive and, and warm and welcoming. I think though, the trick is to approach everything as a reader. <laughs> Sure. That's that's the way in. It's totally the way in. I mean, you can, you know, if you go out there going, well, you know, who's going to read my work, then you probably, you know, it's probably going to be hard to get people to read your work. But just go out there and read it. Everybody wants you to read their stuff, so read it. It's great. There's so much good stuff out there. I mean, I, I, um, every day I'm surprised and delighted by how much wonderful poetry is, and that's fresh, that's new, that's different from anything I've ever read before, um, is still being written. You know, new poets to discover. I'm constantly discovering new ones and thinking, oh, my God, that's so good. <laughs> you know, it's it's exciting. It, it, there's, there's no limit, really, to, to how much good stuff there is out there and how much there is to discover as a reader. And all of that, I think, feeds into the writing. Yeah, and I think we're definitely in a very fertile period as well because even if you just pick one, like say you just you only read Cordite, for example, um, mm. every time it came out, there'd be enough in there to kind of keep you going for oh absolutely yeah I mean that's a pretty good example because they and they always have because they always have guest editors who are who are themselves you know really amongst the best poets around um and they come in with their different lenses and their different approaches and their different interests the the style each month of of Cordite is different so there's always new stuff to discover, absolutely. But, you know, even in an international sphere, you know, I, I, I get the poetry podcasts and, you know, there's always something interesting, fascinating there to discover that seems to be dovetailing into politics, of course, um, in America. And, you know, just there's just always a fresh way to, to experience things through poetry. So uh, as a reader, I'm, I'm constantly delighted. And do you feel... It sounds like you feel quite connected to the Australian poetic community. How do you feel about oh, I do. Yeah. Um, poets in the US and, and being part of that? Because obviously you've got Rich and Bishop and Ennis and Vincent Millay, really strong influences in the latest. I do. Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll, take, I'll take what I can. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't feel the need I, to keep up with every single movement in that scene as well. Um, the, the whore inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> is willing to um, link up with whatever community I, I can um, to get my both my um, connection from a poetic point of view and to get my work read. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to straddle. Yeah, that's great. But that's I do, I mean, I do very much feel connected to the Australian poetry community and, and everything that I do in person, um, at least for the moment, is Australia-based. So you know, the festivals are Australia based, the people who I, I tend to connect with physically, um, face to face will all be Australian. I do, and uh, you know, in the compulsive reader talks and in the reviews that I do, I do tend to be a little bit more focused on Australian work than any, any other type of work, but you know, something will come into my horizon, like, you know, the Pulitzer prize winning Tracy K, K. Smith's life on Mars and, uh, you know, um, it's that's another extraordinary book, which I just, you know, I, I couldn't get enough of. I mean, I still go and open it up if I'm looking for inspiration because it's so good. So, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes feel being a migrant that um, I don't necessarily have to. And again, this is what I mean about being, you know, allowing myself to take from whatever, <laughs> whatever smorgasbord is uh, is on offer before me. You know, I, I feel that I can fit quite happily. It's a nice place to be for me, really. I mean, there's displacement, but there's also a sense of being able to live quite comfortably in the interstices, if you like, <laughs> between cultures. Yeah. And to also understand, understand, so which is so important, I think, the migrant the migrant perspective, almost in a sense of being in permanent transition and, and enjoying that space. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it for sure. 
So I don't want to let you go without uh, asking about my favorite topic, which is how you get your work done. Um, I'm gradually realizing the more I ask this question that it's about as useful as asking someone how they brush their teeth. Like it's not really going to apply to your situation um, or how they take a shower or whatever. Like it's just so, so personal. But this- oh, yes, I wake up every morning, Alice, and, um, you know, from from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock, I do nothing but write poetry yeah. and That's fiction. And <laughs> no, Honestly, I sneak it. That's all I'm going to say. Mm. <laughs> I will – I don't really feel well physically. I'm not joking. And I, I think most writers will say the same thing. I don't actually feel physically well if I haven't written something creative every single day. Something feels wrong. It's like, you know, i got to do my yoga every day and I've got to do some writing. Otherwise, my mental well-being is not – it's not 100%. So I don't know if 100% is even the right <laughs> the right percentage ever as a resting place. But certainly I don't I, – I need to do it. I have to do it. I'm compelled to do it. So I will find time and that time might be – it might be, you know, if I'm actually hit with something, you know, it's sometimes an image or something will, you know, slip into my head. I do have day job. Um, sometimes I'll be working on something really dull and, uh, and I just will, my mind will slide into poetry for solace and I'll have to do it right then and there. And I probably shouldn't say that on the air, but I'm hoping nobody I work with is, is listening at this point. Um, no, I, no, I, I, I'm the same. Iter- like, sometimes no, those iter- reports are, are the best for inspiration. Yeah. I literally was working on a spreadsheet and had people on the phone with me. I was in a conference. Okay, I'm going to admit to this. I was in a conference call and we were discussing a spreadsheet that was in front of me that I was working on. And I was so – I had a headache and – and I, it was such a convoluted, difficult, unpleasant, you know, third circle of Dante's hell type spreadsheet that I, I literally started writing a poem about the spreadsheet instead of paying attention. And every now and again, I just be like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love that. Well, look, I mean, other people are going to be checking Instagram or Tinder while they're in their conference calls. So there you go. Yeah, much that's more right. legitimate. Um, but mostly, mostly. Um, I don't do that. That doesn't happen very often, just in case somebody is listening. Um, mostly I will um, do my writing in the evening. So, you know, once I've kind of finished, we finish dinner and everybody kind of sits down and all the laptops come out, I will, you know, I will start doing some writing based on whatever I'm working on at the time. And I'll just get on with something. Might be a poem, might be a piece of prose. I might be going back to my novel. You know, whatever it is that I'm working on, I will sit down and do some creative writing. And I'll try and do creative writing, a little creative writing. And by creative writing, I also mean, I mean, I I do always have reviews to write as well. So I do a lot of review writing, which is really pleasurable for me, but it's not the same as writing a poem, for example. I don't count it. um, I don't count writing um, nonfiction the same as writing prose. I was writing, sorry, poetry for me. So I will try and do a little of that at least every day. And uh, sometimes I'll sign up for something. I'll actually, you know, put my hand up and say, I'm going to like, uh, there was this Project 365, um, this brilliant project run by um, poet Kit Kelly, in which we kind of agreed we would write one poem every single day. And I did that for just over a month. Um, It was nearly two months for me, actually. And that was brilliant. That was really a fascinating process because I would, I would, wake up in the morning and it kind of sharpened my vision. I had to find something to write about. That was kind of the first half of my day. Whatever I was doing, I would decide what the topic was going to be. And then that evening I would sit down and, and actually write the poem. So sometimes if I haven't been writing a lot, I will force myself by committing to something. Yeah, I definitely use that strategy as well. And it means that you come up with some really uh, terrible drafts but also with things that you would never have thought of putting down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And for just focusing your vision, because again, I would, I would feel like I had to look, I had to look for poetic things each morning. <laughs> it was kind of part of the, the, it became part of, and, and I still do it now. It became kind of part of my um, routine to find a thing. It could be anything, the way a leaf was sitting on the ground or, you know, a particular bird or, you know, the swim that I did that afternoon or the heat in the air, you know, whatever it was, there would be something that I would feel like had to be the topic around which I'd pivot. And so I wanted to ask you just to end, 
a question about how you keep the faith when writing a long collection or longer collection like Unmaking Adams. I mean, this is, I believe this is your ninth collection, including collaborations. Oh, maybe, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> and, and you've written two novels. You've got a third one that is in the works. Um, and, yeah, I guess just what what would you say to newer writers or even more established writers who are having that moment of thinking everything I put down is not worthwhile? Well, one nice thing about poetry and why it's so much, I find it so much more satisfying than working on a long Novel. I mean, a novel's great when you finish it. <laughs> you have to look back and go, "Oh, I've created a world." And there is something incredibly satisfying about that. Um, but you really have to keep the faith. It's a very long-term commitment, and it, unless you're writing a series of interlinked, um, interlinked types of of narratives, you know, like um, vignettes, for example, um, which is doable. But you know, unless you're doing that, there's not much you can do with it until it's done. Whereas with a, po- a poetry collection and many of the poems in this collection, you know, I just do just you just do it one poem at a time, and it's and it, that's not daunting. <laughs> it's not daunting. You can write a poem a day, if, you know, and, and I've done that as as I mentioned. I mean, it's not really daunting to to do that, um, and to just keep at it. Um, and every time you write a poem, you can submit it somewhere. So there's the kind of satisfaction of saying, you know, I, I not only am I done, but it's out there. And sometimes you can submit it to a competition and, you know, and win money or, or submit it to a, a publication and get paid. And so there's little, little rewards along the way with something like a poetry collection, um, that are, that really keep you going. I mean, those, those things really do help a lot to say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to keep doing that. But, um, I also think you have to, you must, and I've been caught out by this, you know, particularly if you're a critic, you have to turn the critical mind off and, and treat it like a practice, like any other kind of practice. And, you know, sometimes you have to say it's a practice, like a mantra, um, when that, that sense of self-doubt comes in, you know, you just have to go, no, I, I'm not, I'm not going to make a judgment about the quality of what I'm doing. I'm just going to front up. That, and it's a it, it's a constant reminder, you know, again, especially when you read such great work, when you're re- always reading wonderful, wonderful things and you think, but I, you know, why should I even bother? There's just a lot for me to read. I'll just read. I don't need to write anything because there's already so many great, wonderful things out there. But, you know, again, I, I remind myself that this is that nobody else is, is you. Nobody else has that unique combination of things that make you you, that nobody's seen those things and, um, and that it is a practice. And, you know, you have, you don't get good unless you show up every, you know, every day, you don't get good without the repetition. And, And so you must come to the table. You must keep writing. That's all. That's all I can offer. 